You are about to listen to the full interview with Patrick Boynton. Sections of it were originally included in our Snallygaster episode. Patrick Boynton is the author of Snallygaster, The Lost Legend of Frederick County. We dig deeper into the history of the Snallygaster, including stories we didn't have time for in the episode. We hope you enjoy. Uh, my name is Patrick Boynton. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, but I've lived in Frederick County, Maryland uh, since 2006. Um, many people who live here consider it uh, Western Maryland, but that's kind of a, a geographical uh, misnomer. It's more like Northern Central Maryland. And uh, my full-time job is I'm a civil servant for the federal government, uh, but I've always enjoyed uh, writing and researching local history. And that's how I spend my spare time. Sure, so my first introduction to the Snallygaster uh, was uh, soon after uh, my wife and I moved to Maryland. Uh, we were out at a local brewery, and um, one of the local beers was called the Snallygaster, and it was on the board, you know, up above, and it struck, my, struck me as a, kind of a funny name, uh, so I asked the waiter about it, and uh, lucky for us, the waiter was a, a native to the Frederick area, and uh, he was able to give me the whole origin about the local legend. I was kind of hooked from there. Sure. Uh, the way the Snallygaster was uh, described to me at first was this uh, winged uh, dragon-like creature. And uh, right away, it made me think of uh, the Jersey Devil, uh, which was a myth that I had grown up hearing about uh, in New Jersey. Uh, so I went online to look for information about the Snallygaster, and uh, there was really not a lot out there. Um, this was around 2006. And um, there, there, wasn't, there just wasn't a whole lot of information about the Snallygaster online. So I went to our county library, and uh, they have an excellent uh, local history section and a really knowledgeable staff. And I started going through old newspaper articles. Uh, everything was on microfilm, so, you know, it was very cinematic. I was kind of like, you know, scrolling through these old, you know, microfiche. It was very kind of silence of the lamps. So, uh, before, <laughs> uh, so before I knew it, I, I gathered... A stack of research, and um, my wife recommended that I uh, write a book on it, and that's how it started. It was my first book. I had not. I'd uh, done writing, read short stories and such, um, made some short films, but I'd, I'd never, uh, never written a book before. I did. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, that one's called... Uh, Beware of the Snallygaster, and it's a chapter book for 8 to 10, 11-year-olds, and uh, it follows the adventures of two local kids uh, trying to search down, seek out the Snallygaster. I have not, no. It's a, it's a good idea. I hope somebody does it. Uh, the first settlers in Frederick and Washington counties uh, were the Pennsylvania Dutch who migrated south from uh, southeastern and south-central Pennsylvania in the uh, late 18th century. And uh, Frederick was an important stop on their migration route as they came down uh, from Gettysburg and continued, they continued south through uh, Winchester, Roanoke, Virginia. So the Pennsylvania Dutch uh, sounds like they should be immigrants from the Netherlands, but they're actually, you know, German settlers. And the name Dutch in this case is uh, from Deutsch, which of course means German. So some folks think that the Pennsylvania Dutch are actually Dutch, but they're they're German. According to Alice Weinberg's book Spirits of Frederick, uh, tales of the Snallygaster go back to the earliest German settlers in about 1735, but there's nothing really recorded until um, nearly a century and a half after that. Well, based on my research, uh, the Snallygaster and its description as a flying winged creature probably comes close to dragon folklore. And of course, there's a lot of uh, dragon folklore in uh, Germany. But in uh, 1876, there was a widow from Washington society. Her name was uh, Madeline uh, Dahlgren. 
and she purchased an old inn on uh, South Mountain in Washington County, uh, and that neighbors Frederick County. And it, uh, she turned her residence, well, she turned the, uh, the inn into her, her private residence, her summer residence. Uh, so she was a writer, and she had uh, started collecting folklore and legends uh, from the locals who uh, lived on the mountain. And she published these legends in a book called uh, South Mountain Magic. Uh, it's a great book. It's still in print, by the way. And it's filled with all these crazy stories about like werewolves and hoop snakes. Uh, hoop snakes are these snakes that move by biting their own tail and rolling around like a tire. Uh, so they're really crazy and uh, just really, really great stories. And um, she doesn't mention the word Snallygaster in South Mountain Magic, but uh, Madeline Dahlgren does talk a lot about uh, ghost stories and poltergeists. And in my early research, I discovered that uh, Snallygaster may be a mispronunciation of Schneilgeister, which is itself a corruption of the German term Schneilgeist or quick spirit. So in the Pennsylvania Dutch tradition, the quick spirit is responsible for things being knocked off shelves and moving around, uh, sort of like a, a poltergeist we would think of. Uh, so the Snallygaster actually could have started out as a ghost story. So Snallygaster might be an amalgam of traditional ghost story and dragon lore. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, sure. Around uh, 1909, when it first started appearing in the uh, local newspaper, it was uh, described as a uh, winged dragon-like creature. In addition to its wings, it was described as having a needle-like beak and uh, four legs armed with steel claws, um, like hooks, and a single eye in the middle of its forehead. And it was also reported to emit a screech like a locomotive whistle. Sure, the, the original run of the Snallygaster stories in uh, 1909 began on uh, February 12th of that year, of 1909. And it appeared in the uh, Middletown Valley Register, which was a uh, local newspaper. Um, Snallygaster was spotted by a man named Bill Gifferson, who was uh, walking along a country road uh, one evening when a winged beast swooped down from the night sky and uh, snatched him up, pierced his neck with its beak, and uh, tossed his lifeless body over a cliff. So I'm not sure if Mr. Gifferson counts as an eyewitness because he didn't live to tell the tale, but that's the first recorded Snallygaster victim and the first time the Snallygaster appears in the newspaper. Um, and following the initial story, there were a series of articles that appeared in the register uh, and surrounding papers about additional sightings in the area. Uh, there was a man named uh, George Jacobs, who was out hunting the Snallygaster. And uh, when the beast came down from the sky and Jacobs shot at it, uh, but apparently the bullet rattled off its hide as if hitting an iron plate. And the man uh, narrowly escaped into a barn. Uh, so it was a happier ending for him than uh, Bill Gifferson, for sure. I don't. I don't know who told the story of Bill Gifferson for the first time. I think it's kind of interesting that the first Snallygaster story has no eyewitnesses, right? It's, um, it's it, it makes it kind of funny in a way. I always found that kind of, it, it wasn't lost on me when I was researching it. I always kind of found it amusing. I did do some research uh, to see if there was an actual Bill Gifferson, and I was unable to find anything in the in the records. Uh, now, some of the names, uh, particularly the publisher and the, and the, and the writer associated um, at the paper at the time, uh, were real individuals. Uh, but Bill Gifferson and some of the other eyewitnesses uh, were not names I was able to find.
Well, when I started uh, researching the Snallygaster, I uh, had reread an old book I had on the Jersey Devil. And as I had mentioned earlier, I realized that there were these parallels between the Snallygaster and, and the New Jersey Jet Devil. And I had, you know, heard stories about the New Jersey Devil growing up. Uh, so I went back to an old book I had on the Jersey Devil, and there was a big rash of sightings. And lo and behold, uh, they happened just weeks before the uh, the Snallygaster stories started to emerge. Uh, but the similarities didn't end there. Um, they both shared similar physical characteristics as far as having wings and talons. Uh, they were both referred to as jabberwocks, uh, which of course comes from the Lewis Carroll poem about a fierce creature. Uh, so if you're inclined to believe the stories, you can surmise that the Jersey Devil traveled south and is the same creature as the Snallygaster. Certainly a lot of people have come to that conclusion. Or you could, you know, come to the conclusion that the Valley Register publishers ripped off the story from the New Jersey papers. And uh, I don't stress that connection too much because nobody likes to think of their hometown monster as, as being a knockoff of another monster. <laughs> Sure. From the 1909 era, to me, the most interesting Snallygaster story is the connection that it had with President uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, Teddy Roosevelt was in his last weeks of office, and uh, when the Snallygaster stories made their way down to D.C., there were reports that the Smithsonian Institution wanted to capture it alive. Uh, so it didn't take long before President Roosevelt himself expressed interest in hunting down the beast. Of course, Teddy was uh, already known for his big game prowess, so it would have made perfect sense uh, to readers at the time. So Roosevelt, as I mentioned, was in the last weeks of his presidency, and he was planning a trip to Africa to hunt big game. And his African safari dominated the papers, so it was big news, um, much more interesting than the incoming president elect Taft, which nobody seemed real excited about. Um, everybody loved Teddy Roosevelt, and I, I think the papers wanted to c continue talking about him even, even as he was getting ready to leave office. So I, I just, I love the idea of Teddy Roosevelt hunting the Snallygaster because he's already a mythic figure in his own right. So it really captures that turn of the century America to have these two legends kind of battling it out, but I don't I don't think it ever happened. Uh, I think either Teddy Roosevelt was making light of the Snallygaster stories. Um, there's a possibility, you know, he had heard the Snallygaster stories, or there's another possibility that he did, Teddy Roosevelt had not heard about the Snallygaster and that the papers were kind of capitalizing on Teddy's popularity uh, and injected, you know, him into the Snallygaster story, which really makes perfect sense, as I mentioned, because he, he was uh, a famous hunter even at the time. Uh, so an interesting aside is um, a lot of the animal specimens at the Smithsonian Institution today are war ones killed by Teddy Roosevelt on that African trip that he took after leaving office. Yeah, I I can't I couldn't find any direct quotes that Teddy Roosevelt had commented on the Snallygaster, um, and I couldn't really find too many stories from the DC papers. It was mostly, it was quoted, you know, from the local papers, from the Middletown Valley Register and the, and the Frederick paper uh, that he was involved. So it, it's probably pretty unlikely that it was something that he knew about or, or seriously considered. But like I said, I don't, I don't want to ruin anybody's fun. Um, it's, it's a fun story and uh, it's fun to think about, but I, I don't see any historical evidence for that actually taking place. It was uh, in the 1909 that Snallygaster met its match uh, in the form of a group of men from Emmitsburg, Maryland, 
which is in the uh, northern part of the county, uh, Frederick County. And there was a railway worker uh, named Ed Brown, and he was sitting outside the Emmitsburg Railroad Station uh, when he heard a noise around back. Uh, now, he believed that this was a coal thief because in the winter months, coal theft was actually one of the most common crimes committed um, in rural Maryland. Uh, so he went around back and sure enough, he found that he was 16 pieces of coal short. And uh, he was about to go get the authorities when the Snallagaster swooped down and grabbed him, picked him up by his suspenders, started to fly off. Uh, now lucky for Brown, his buddy Dan Snyder pulled up in his automobile. So Dan Snyder grabbed Mr. Brown uh, by his ankles and was pulling him down. So there was this tug of war as Snallagaster was trying to fly off. And uh, he finally was able to pull Mr. Brown down and free him. And then the two of them ran off, chased the, they, they ran and chased the Snallagaster off uh, into the woods. And at some point there was a deputy game warden who showed up, flashed his badge, and then ordered the Snallagaster from the county. So I guess the Snallagaster was law abiding because he flew off and he wasn't heard from for another, uh, he wasn't heard from again for another 23 years. Yes, yes. Uh, these stories were captured, mostly taken uh, from the Middletown Valley Register. Well, the Middletown Valley Register was a daily paper that served the Middletown Valley of Washington County. It started in uh, 1856, I believe, and actually operated until 1990 when it became a weekly paper. Uh, and then it turns into the Middletown Citizen, which is still in print. Sure. Uh, the Middletown Valley Register's publisher, uh, or the editor of the, of the Middletown Valley Register was a gentleman named George C. Roderick. And uh, Ralph Wolf uh, was the writer. So Wolf did most of the writings of these articles and uh, Roderick was the editor at the time. And those, they were both, you know, real members of the community and they actually did run that paper for that, that period. To my knowledge, uh, Roderick and Wolf never came out to admit that they had created any sort of hoax. But it's, I think it's important to point out that hoax stories were, were very prominent um, up until a few years following the uh, turn of the century there. From the end of the Civil War through the early 1990s, newspaper readership rose uh, from 10 to 26% of the population. And this reflected the illiteracy rate, which had uh, dropped uh, from 20% to 10. So this was due to an increasing population and urbanization. And suddenly there was this huge demand for newspaper content and papers would often make up and spread crazy stories to stand out in a uh, crowded marketplace. And these weren't just for ideological or political slants, although there was certainly that, but um, these were a lot of these were just really nutty off the wall stories just to get attention. Uh, before becoming a famous author, Mark Twain wrote a story about a man who murdered his wife and ran through the streets with her scalp uh, and his own throat cut. And, um, there was another story about a man who had crossed the Atlantic in a hot air balloon. And uh, this was written 100 years before it actually happened. And the writer of that story was Edgar Allan Poe. So this was pretty popular at, at the time. Um, so to, entering the 20th century, there was a turn toward journalistic integrity as readers became more sophisticated. Uh, but a lot of the smaller papers like the Valley Register continued to run and reprint these hoax stories. The first victim of the Snallagaster, Bill Gifferson, uh, was reported to be an African-American man. And uh, there were references in the articles that Snallagaster preyed on black people. And uh, a book about the Maryland history published in 1940 echoed the sentiment and it described the Snallagaster as being a reptilian bird of vast size that preys on black children. And uh, being that this was Jim Crow era South, 
when I was doing my research, I just assumed that these references were collected as sort of general racism that was prevalent at the uh, time and place. But while this was certainly the case, uh, the connection of the Snallagasker to the African-American community appeared to have been more pointed in its political targeting. Um, in a follow-up article, another African-American resident was quoted as saying, he wasn't scared of running across the Snallagaster. The only devil he was worried about was the Democratic amendment next fall. So I started researching this, and the amendment in question was the Strauss Amendment, which was a Democratic proposal that intended to restrict the uh, voting rights of African Americans. And Democrats, Democrats controlled Maryland government on a um, white supremacist platform in the early 1900s. And uh, reading the editorials and coverage of the uh, Valley Register, it was clear that the paper's uh, publishers held a Republican position, and Middletown was and is still uh, to this day a strongly strong strong Republican um, stronghold. Uh, so I believe that Roderick and Wolf uh, were using these Snallagasker stories in part to troll Democrats in a way and put a spotlight on the concerns of uh, voter suppression in the African American community. And it seems to have worked because the Strauss Amendment was one of uh, three attempts to amend the state constitution to suppress the black vote, and uh, all three uh, were defeated by referendum. That's really hard to say. Um, there, 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 there is a belief that that that's what they were doing. That. But there's also a sense in reading the peripheral uh, editorials and articles uh, in the paper uh, that were that were coming out at the same time um, that there was this this issue of voter suppression and uh, that these this was an issue that they were concerned about. And so there would be these editorials that the paper would run side by side next to the Snellengaster stories. And the editorials, you know, would, would talk about, um, you know, challenging African-American voter suppression, voter voter rights and so forth. And um, and that happened later on. We, we can discuss that. But it, it really re reading these uh, Snellengaster stories in the context of the newspapers themselves um, through the microfilm, as opposed to an article that's been cited. Uh, really contextualizes, um, I, I feel it really contextualizes the, the, the stories and, and, and really frames it and, and helps you understand the, the political climate, uh, maybe the political sensibilities and um, biases of, of the paper at the time. And I started to really kind of get a sense as to what, what they were trying to do with these stories. Um, because when I first started reading them, I had no idea, you know, that there was this uh, kind of racist underlying theme, you know, running through the Snallagasper stories. And it took a lot of digging to really put that in context and really kind of begin to understand what that was. Sure. The Snallagaster actually came back about 23 years later in, uh, November, on November 11th, 1932. A number of people had claimed to have seen this giant winged uh, one-eyed creature flying over the South Mountain region. And it was determined to be the same Snallagaster that had visited the region in 1909. And this time the creature was said to change colors and throw out long tentacles like an octopus. If you see the cover of my first book, Snallagaster, The Lost Legend of Frederick County, the, the illustration on, on the book cover uh, is like the 1932 era Snallagaster with the, the tentacles, you know, kind of coming out of its mouth. So that those tentacles hadn't really been part of its description in the 1909 stories. There was, yes. <laughs> yeah, there was a photograph, uh, the legend. And it, it's kind of neat to look at that in, in the microfilm. I believe I, I 
have a copy of that in, in the book. Um, and it's just sort of, just sort of, sort of grainy image of a, of a, of a flying winged creature. It's just sort of like out of bad 1932 Photoshop. I don't. No, I don't have any any history on that. I imagine the photograph was something that was created and manipulated for the, you know, for the Middletown Valley Register. It, yes, it was. Uh, it was actually 1932, so it was a it was a 23 year difference between 1932 and, and 1909. Yep. There was uh, there was a reemergence. Um, I can talk a little bit about the, the 1932 source because those are really the the two main eras are are um, are 19, 1930 1909 and then 1932 and then there are these kind of sporadic reemergences where or it sporadically reemerges again here and there through the years but sure. Yeah, uh, so stories of the Snallygaster in the 1932 run uh, get less fanciful and um, significantly more frightening than in the 1909 run. And the city of Frederick is the county seat of Frederick County. And even then, it was uh, much different than the rest of the county where the Snallygaster stories had originated. Uh, Frederick had factories and shops and row houses uh, so when reports of the Snallygaster came to the city of Frederick, it took on a much more of like an urban legend flair. Uh, instead of flying over farmland and swooping down to eat chickens, the Snallygaster was seen scaling fences and peering through bedroom windows. It was much more threatening and menacing, uh, more akin to something we'd see in a modern horror movie. Apparently, in 1932, the Snallygaster died from alcohol. Uh, he was attracted to fumes from a moonshine uh, still out in the woods of Washington County. And um, I guess he flew too close and was overcome by the fumes and then fell into this 2,500-gallon uh, vat of boiling moonshine. And, uh, of course, the moonshiners that were attending the illicit still fled into the woods. And by the time their prohibition officers arrived on the scene, the mash had eaten away at the monster's skin and muscle, leaving nothing but a skeletal remains. So um, just to be sure, they put 500 pounds of dynamite under the bat and blew it up. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, that, that story was recounted. Uh, that story was recounted in the Middletown Valley Register. That's the story that, that had the big Snell Yester um, alleged photograph and it also had a had a photograph of the officers you know the, the prohibition officers standing there with their their rifles and standing over the still and uh, it was it was quite something so what motivated that uh, was prohibition that was uh, going on uh, in the country at the time um, so Uh, yes, I, I think that the local newspaper, the Middletown Valley Register, which was very pro-prohibition, was using these stories of the Snallygaster being attracted to moonshine stills as a way to, it was used as a way to scare off the, the moonshiners, and it was also um, a way to, to get in their, their political shots um, as being pro-temperance, you know, anti alcohol. Uh, so it's just as Jim Crow voter suppression was a big issue in 1909, the important issue in 1932 was uh, prohibition. So during the Democratic National Convention of that year, candidate Franklin Roosevelt declared war on prohibition. Americans were eager to get their legal drink back on and Roosevelt was, you know, eager to make that happen and he won by a landslide. And uh, 10 days after he won the presidential election, the Valley Register started running Snallygaster stories again. So there's a real connection there between uh, Franklin Roosevelt's um, election uh, and and the, the reemergence of the Snallygaster story. 
so the Valley Register publishers at the time, these two gentlemen named uh, Charles Maine and Edward Leiter, uh, they were big supporters of upholding prohibition, and they feared that it would pillow the, um, the, the Valley Register publishers, Charles Maine and Edward Leiter, they were big supporters of upholding prohibition. So uh, they feared that a repeal of the 18th Amendment wasn't far behind, uh, which of course it wasn't, and uh, the paper was filled with pro-prohibition pieces, and uh, it was time to unleash the Snellgaster to uh, take on another social evil in their eyes. Well, no, that's, that's an excellent question that you're asking. And that's why I was talking about the, um, the real benefit of, of reading these stories in context of a newspaper, like in the layout of the paper itself. So you get to see all the surrounding peripheral articles and issues that were going on at the time. I think once these weird stories get isolated, reprinted, archived, put into a book form, all that stuff kind of gets lost. <laughs> and you just kind of distill it down to this, you know, creature. So who knows? I mean, I haven't really researched these other um, myths, other legends, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of them are rooted in these uh, social issues at the time, especially ones that came about during turn of the century when these hoax stories were, were still really uh, prevalent. Well, but, but that you're, you're absolutely right. And in a way for the story, I think, to survive and endure, it almost has to become isolated from these instances because, first of all, there's there's just lots of, you know, ugly racial connotations, like in the case of 1909. And, you know, when I came across that stuff, it was, I didn't know I was going to come across it when I was writing the book. And there was, a, to be honest, there was a part of me that said, oh, I... I, I don't know how to fit this into the tone of the book I was writing. I was writing this book about this 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 interesting creature and and this this ugly stuff has come up, this racism and and I don't I don't know how to deal with it. Well, I had to deal with it because it's part of history and it's part of the Snellgaster's history. So I couldn't rightly ignore it uh, because then I would be kind of whitewashing the Snellgaster myth and uh, promoting it. Now, when I've given talks locally about the Snowgaster and those points come up. Yeah, I can, you know, some people sort of bristle at it um, as if I'm kind of making the Snowgaster less fun or, or taking something that they view as um, playful and innocent uh, and, and, and associating it with something much darker. Um, but it is what it is. <laughs> Sure. So on July 8th, 1947, uh, the Frederick News ran a story about a local man who had witnessed flying saucers uh, traveling from the north and headed towards uh, Washington, D.C. There were, flop, there were uh, five flying saucers in formation, and the paper uh, tried to tie the incident into the Snallygaster legend by basically saying, we're not afraid of UFOs. We've dealt with Snallygasters. Now, I researched it, and 1947 was when the UFO sightings first started to begin. I'm not a UFO expert, <laughs> uh, but I'm sure some of your listeners will be m much more familiar with the, the background here. But apparently there was a pilot uh, who had you know, first reported uh, flying saucer UFO in 1947, June of that year, I believe. I think it was that summer. And that's when the, the uh, flying saucer UFO stories really started to take off. So there again, we have an example of a local paper kind of capitalizing on the, the UFO craze and 
folding in their own legend uh, to make it kind of relevant. Sure. Um, I, I didn't run across the information about, I, I, I never ran across the story connecting the Snallygaster to Senator uh, Joseph McCarthy when I was doing my research. It was something that I came across later on, probably in, on the, it, it, probably in the same sources that you have, you know, on Wikipedia and such. Um, so I don't have a whole lot to say about the connection between uh, Senator McCarthy and the Snallygaster, except for that the word snalligaster, which is a derivation of snalligaster, is a, often used as a description of an unscrupulous politician. And it still occasionally will come up. So if you do a search for snalligaster, a lot of the stuff that comes up are you know, references to a, uh, a, a politician. So if a politician is um, acting without scruples, they're, they're called a snalligaster. And I don't know where that started. I don't know when that, that term was first published or who kind of ran with it. But there's always been this kind of connection between snalligaster, snalligaster, and corrupt politicians, probably because of the snalligaster's proximity to Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C., if I can take a guess. Sure. So uh, Gordon Chaplin, um, he's a writer, and uh, he was a staff writer at the Washington Post in the 1970s. And he wrote pieces for their Sunday magazine on travel and politics, and his stories often had a humorous bent. And he wrote a, um, Gordon Chaplin in 1976 uh, published a story uh, called the Grand Bicentennial Washington Post Potomac Expedition to Darkest Maryland in Search of the Mysterious Snallygaster. And it sort of reads like a cross between Joseph Conrad's Hearts of Darkness and a Wes Anderson movie. It's very absurd, um, kind of in the vein of Hunter S. Thompson's gonzo journalism. So again, you read the article in context, it's clearly some sort of satire. Um, it's, it's playful. It's fun. It's bizarre. No, I, I think it is misinterpreted as not being satire uh, probably quite often. Because <clears throat> as we were talking about before, most of these stories exist out of context eventually, right? So Gordon Chaplin just goes on a Snallygaster goes on a Snallygaster expedition in 1976, and it's funded by the you know the Washington Post, and that's that becomes the story that most people read. It just becomes part of Snallygaster lore. So the idea that it was this satirical article, which is a great piece, and I've read it in full, kind of gets lost, I think. But but maybe that's not such a terrible thing. No, no, uh, I had not heard anything of uh, Gordon Cap uh, Chaplin coming coming back, um, you know, with, with any kind of stories about the, the Snallygaster. Um, apparently, hundreds of uh, people had volunteered for his expedition, and uh, including bartenders, taxi drivers, atomic scientists, uh, even some politicians. And he narrowed it down to what he considered to be the five most qualified people in the world. And uh, these people were Dick Swanson, who was a Life magazine photographer who had covered uh, the Vietnam War for six years. And he was in charge of defense and pharmaceuticals. <laughs> and then there was a husband and wife team called the Lockettes, and they were in charge of logistics. And then there was uh, Ginny Duran. Uh, she was a filmmaker who documented the lives of prostitutes. And then there was Gordon's wife, Helen, who had practiced uh, homeopathic medicine and she served the role of psychic healer. So it was all very sort of 1970s. Um, and I, you read the article in context, and it's a, there's elements of the Watergate scandal and New Age religion and gonzo journalism. 
Um, and it, it's all kind of meshed together into this, you know, fun, absurd article. I, you know, I can't tell if, uh, if, if um, Chaplin was, was, was into that stuff or, or not. Uh, he may have been m making fun of, um, or, or sort of poking fun at, at that, uh, what was going on at the time, you know, and there was a lot of this kind of new age stuff. So he, there's a good chance that he was actually uh, poking, poking fun at that um, instead of really being a part of it. Um, I do know that he was a environmentalist and he wrote a lot about environmental issues and some of those details creep into his uh, Snellgaster expedition story uh, where folks are concerned that you know killing the Snellgaster is going to disrupt the ecosystem and so forth. Sure. So I, I think what makes the Snallygaster so adaptable uh, is you can see him through all kinds of different lenses, uh, through folklore, through uh, socio-political commentary, uh, cryptozoology. That seems to be the strongest draw for a lot of people. Uh, I actually have a funny story about that. So a couple of years ago, uh, I, I get this call out of the blue from this producer out in Los Angeles, and um, he says, well, you know, are you the Snellgaster writer? And I said, yeah, yeah, I wrote this book about Snellgaster. Right, I'd love to talk to you about it. Okay, because we, we want to do this, this, this documentary series on the Snellgaster. Okay. And he told me who he was with, and I, I won't name the, you know, the, the channel, but, you know, he mentioned that he was, you know, going to do that. He was going to make this, you know, very serious documentary about the Snellgaster. And so he starts asking me all these, um, all these questions, uh, you know, about the Snellgaster, and I'm, giving them all the information I've given you about, you know, African-American voter suppression and prohibition and uh, Dutch Pennsylvania, uh, Dutch Pennsylvania folklore and mythology. And I'm going on and on and I'm probably, you know, talking to Purdue 20 minutes straight. And I'm imagining, oh, he's going to have me on this like Snallygaster expert and I'm going to be the guy like in front of a row of books and, you know. <laughs> and then he pauses and he goes, well, have you ever seen it? And I, just, and I just sort of went crestfallen, and I knew where right, right, right then I knew where it was going. I went, no, 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 sir, I, I have not seen it. I'm, I'm sorry. And he goes, do you know, do you know anyone has seen it? And I said, no, no, sir, I, I, I can't think of anyone. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure you can go out there and find them. You know, I'm sure they're out there. Oh, thank, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Like, <laughs> we'll be in touch. I never heard from him. So then, like, you know, six months later, something buddy of mine gives me a call. He goes, you got to turn on the TV. They got your Snallygaster on there. And I turn it on, and it's the show. <laughs> and it's these guys out in the woods, you know, making Snallygaster calls, you know, uh, you know, hunting it down, um, all very, very serious, and, you know, night vision cameras and, and the whole thing. And uh, so, you know, the lesson learned, if you, I, I missed my 15 minutes, and, uh, if I had only told them I had seen the Snallygaster and I was willing to trace through the woods in the middle of the night to go find it, but. Accurate, accurate. Very funny. It's very funny indeed. It was hilarious. Um, I did enjoy the show. It was very entertaining. It was a lot of fun. And I am all for, you know, Snallygaster in the spotlight, you know. Uh, but I, I mention that because, you know, the cryptozoological element is definitely the thing that appeals to most people. That's definitely that where we are right now, sort of in the zeitgeist. And when I, when I talk about the other stuff, I got to be honest, I, I kind of lose some folks, but that's okay. That's all right. Because, you know, there's always somebody out there willing to go out there with a, a Snallygaster um, whistle and, and uh, do the Snallygaster calls and, um, you know, set traps and so forth. Well, um, this, I think you, I don't know if you can see the Snallygaster in the future, but 
there is a the Snellagaster Beer Festival, uh, which is coming back to D.C. on October 12th. It's been going on for a few years now. Uh, I've always meant to go, haven't been, but they have a you know a series of local uh, breweries and people bring beers and they drink. And uh, there's a commemorative Snellagaster mug. So <laughs> that started a couple of years ago. The Snellagaster Beer Festival It's very popular. Um, apparently attracts a lot of folks. Um, but in all seriousness, as far as the Snellagaster coming back, um, that's a really good question. We are in really turbulent times. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Um, if, 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 if the Snellagaster comes back, uh, it's, it's virally somehow, it's probably not going to be the Snellagaster that we recognize, you know, from 1909 or even 1932 or even 1976 where the Snellagaster had already taken on more of kind of a Bigfoot look. Um, I think the Snellagaster changes with the times and it would probably be, uh, you know, something that, that, that we're, we're, we're not all that, that familiar with. But you see these uh, myths and, and legends emerging to speak to, um, you know, modern anxieties and fears. Uh, there, <laughs> we have an eight-year-old in, in grammar school, and we got an email last year, you know, sort of hysterical email that, you know, there was this thing on YouTube that was like, you know, trying to get your kid to like hurt themselves. And, um, you know, it was all a hoax, you know, none of it was, none of it was real. Uh, but what it, what it was, was it was a reflection of parental anxiety about technology and about losing your kids to YouTube, uh, you know, and all these sort of very real concerns. So it's incredible how these urban legends and these stories, mythologies will, will always kind of emerge to, to speak to, to modern anxieties. Well, uh, so for, for me, uh, the appeal to the Snallagaster has always been its kind of idiosyncratic regional weirdness. Uh, it's, it'd be really hard to kind of export the Snallagaster out of this region without kind of losing its uniqueness. And um, it would probably just sort of become kind of a generic dragon uh, or something. Not that there's anything wrong with dragons, but... It, it wouldn't be the Snellagaster. Uh, if you took the Snellagaster and removed it from this region of Maryland and its history, it would be something very different. Uh, so that's always been the appeal to me. Uh, it's something that kind of resists being commodified. And, you know, ev everything seems to be kind of commodified now. So it's, it's pretty strange. It's, it's, it's pretty strange that would take time. At the same time, um, you know, somebody out there with no connection to the area, you know, may, may take this Malagaster and, and do something, you know, unique and cool with it. And that's cool, too. I, I'm, I'm, I never say never, right? Um, I'm not sure if I have enough material to write to write another book about this Malagaster. Um, the, the kids' book was, was a lot of fun. Uh, wasn't terribly successful, uh, to be honest. I mean, I, I, what I was trying to do with it was I was uh, trying to kind of scratch that that cryptozoological itch uh, that a lot of kids have that really wasn't present in the first book. Uh, so I'd go to these, um, you know, school do I I go do readings at schools or libraries in the area and um, realized that the material, uh, the way I presented it, uh, needed to be kind of modified uh, to capture the attention of children. So I thought, well, I'll take, you know, these young kids and I'll put them at the center of the story and, and have them kind of search at the Snallygaster. Um, so that, that was kind of my attempt of what I was trying to uh, do there. Uh, another reason I wanted to do that um, was the, the region has, has changed quite a bit. So you have a lot of kids that uh, live here that did not grow up in the area, whose parents didn't even grow up in the area. Uh, it's become much more of a commuter community, you know, than it was even, you know, 30 uh, years ago. 
So you got a lot of folks that live out here that take those big long commute into DC. So you've got these, you know, professionals um, out here, and these their kids have never heard stories of the Snallygaster because they didn't grow up hearing them from their grandparents. So I, I wanted to find a way to continue the legacy of the Snallygaster um, in an honorable way. Um, so for for a new generation to you know, show some interest in it. And that's really my goal. Um, you know, I mean, I, if I sell a few books, that's, that's cool. But my main, what my, my legacy hopefully will be that, you know, there's a book about the Snallygaster sitting on the bookshelves of the local libraries and that future generations may stumble across it and realize that they've got a, you know, monster in their own backyard. Okay, so both of my Snallygaster books, Snallygaster, The Lost Legend of Frederick County, and Beware the Snallygaster are available for purchase on Amazon. Now, I would just encourage, um, so I'd just like to kind of encourage folks that are uh, listening to your podcast to seek out the weird myths and legends of their own communities, because who knows, uh, maybe you know, they'll end up writing a book on an obscure local legend. You know, there's a lot of local legends that are more popular, more well-known, but a lot of folks would be surprised. You know, there, there's, there are stories in, in every town uh, in, in America, large and small, um, mythical creatures, ghost stories. Um, I'm sure you'll cover a lot of them in your, in your podcast series. Uh, so I, I would encourage folks to um, go beyond the Internet and go to the local libraries and, um, and, and go do research and, and find out what's out there. Tell us about your favorite local legend on our Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on our Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Please give us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Visit www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Terrara. It's written and produced by R.J. Blake and Ray Terrara. Theme music by Tara Monk. Additional music provided by Sergi Cheramizanov.